0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Per Tempus. I am your host, Jason Harvey, and last week we went over uh, one of my ancestors, Cynthia Alley, and the old 300, uh, she was a member of the first 300, well her family was a member of the first 300 settlers in Texas. Uh, this week, we're going to go a little further back in history. Um, I was pretty amazed by this story, so I just thought I'd share it with you. Um this is uh uh about Robert Joseph McEwen, um who kinda sorta immigrated from Scotland, um but was actually a prisoner of war. And uh it states In his journal, or in his business journal, Robert McEwen from Dundee, Scotland, uh, wrote, In June 18th, uh, I assume 1670, I was in one one engagement in Scotland at Bothwell's Bridge, I then being the age of 18 years. The 5th of September, uh, we set sail from Scotland to come to America, and we landed at Amhoy the 18th of December. And uh, it says he was married to Sarah Wilcoxon in Stratford. And then it goes on to say, Early in life, he had attached himself to the sect called from their leader the Cameronians, and at the age of 18, in 1679, he was engaged in a battle against the king. Many of these persecuted Christians, being in bonds and imprisoned, were in 1685 sent by the government of Scotland on board of a ship of war of 50 guns, so a pretty big ship, uh, to colonize the Isthmus of Darien. Um, Now, when I read that, I wasn't too sure uh, of where the town or the colony of Darien was, so... Thankfully, I have the internet, and Darien was a settlement in Panama, so uh, it sounds like to me that this was going to be a life sentence for uh, our Robert McEwen, Um, and a lot of people that were sent off to Panama usually died from uh, disease. Anyway, getting back to uh, this little write-up. But the commander of the ship, dying a few days after they had put to sea, the passengers brought the ship towards America and ran her ashore at Amhoy, New Jersey. Now, the commander of the ship just mysteriously dies, and somehow the passengers uh, steer the ship towards America, I don't know, it sounds like to me that uh, they probably mutinied. I mean, how do the passengers who were the prisoners uh, get control of the ship after their commander mysteriously dies? Um, And mutinies did happen on on prisoner ships. So, that's pretty awesome. Uh, And it says, A tradition among the family in Stratford says that Robert McGowan and one of or two of his fellow passengers having heard in Scotland of the freedom and in Connecticut, set out from Amhoy on foot to Stratford in February 1686. <clears throat> and, I mean, you kind of have to take in consideration that they landed in December, so pretty cold, frigid temperatures, and uh, they just set out on foot uh, during the middle of winter. Uh, pretty awesome. And being a tailor by trade, began his life work in a free country. His account book of the work work done and charges made was a small parchment-covered uh, quarto still preserved some years ago by one of his descendants, uh, daughter of Timothy Wilcoxon, I assume. So, um, I looked at, because apparently... Uh, Him and his crew lost the Battle of Bothwell Bridge, and uh, I wasn't aware of what this battle was, so I looked it up, and I'm thankful for uh, Wikipedia. So the Battle of Bothwell Bridge, or Bothwell Brig, took place on the 22nd of June 1679. It was fought between government troops and militant Presbyterian commenters. And signalled the end of their brief rebellion. The battle took place at the bridge over the River Strath, or the River blah, Clyde, <laughs> in Hamilton, South Lanarkshire, near Bothwell, in Lanarkshire, Scotland. The battle uh, has been included in the inventory of historic battlefields in Scotland and protected by the Historic Scotland. Uh, under the Historic Environment Act in 2011. So the background uh, of what led up to this battle says, uh, following the restoration of King Charles II, King Charles II uh, at that time was uh, king of England, Scotland, and Ireland. So, pretty powerful guy. Um, The Presbyterians in Scotland were increasingly persecuted for their beliefs, and a small armed rising had been put down in 1666, although some Presbyterian ministers were indulged by the government in 1669, allowing them to retain their churches without having to accept uh, (laughs) Episcopacy. I hope I said that right. Or I wonder if that's referring to Episcopalian beliefs. I'm not sure, but... Uh, the more hard hardline elements continued to hold illegal outdoor meetings uh, known as uh, Conventus, to cycles. Man, I am butchering these words. Uh, these were often broken up by squads of government dragoons, including those led by John Graham of Claverhouse. On uh, the 1st of June, 1679, Claverhouse had encountered such a gathering near Loudon Hill, but his troops were routed by armed commenters at the Battle of Drumclog, and he was forced to flee to uh, Glasgow. Following this initial success, the conventors spent the next few weeks building their strength, as did the government. Uh, Charles' son, James, Duke of Monmouth, uh, was sent north to take command, and the militia was raised. Uh, so the battle itself, the conventors had established their camp on the south bank of the Clyde, north of Hamilton. The rebels numbered around 6,000 men, but were poorly disciplined and deeply divided by religious disagreements. They had a few competent commanders, being nominally led by uh, Robert Hamilton of Preston, although his rigid stance against the indulged ministers only encouraged division. So it sounds like this force of 6,000 men that could have been a problem for... The British troops uh, had division in their ranks, and that ultimately led to their downfall. Uh, The preacher Donald Cargill and William Cleland, the victor of Drumclog, were were present, as were David Haxton of Rathalae, I think that's how you say that, and John Balfour of Kinlock, known as Burley, who were among the group who murdered Archbishop Sharp, On May 3rd, the government army numbered around 5,000 regular troops and militia and were commanded by Monmouth, supported by Claverhouse, and the Earl of Linlithgow. The royalist troops were massed on the northern or Bothwell bank of the river Clyde on sloping ground that included a field that has since become known, ironically enough, as the Cometor's Field. Battle centered on a narrow bridge across Clyde, the passage of which Monmouth was required to force in order to come to come at the Covenanters. So it sounds like his uh, his British troops were pretty much bottlenecked, which should have given um, uh, the Scottish uh, militia an advantage, but apparently it didn't. Uh, Haxton led the defense of the bridge and had some initial success in the initial skirmish at the bridge itself, but his men lacked artillery and ammunition, oh, that's bad, and were forced to withdraw after around an hour. Once Monmouth's men were across the bridge, the commenters were qu- quickly routed. Many fled into the parks of the nearby Hamilton Palace, seat of the Duchess Anne, who was sympathetic to the Presbyterian cause, and it was in this area that the final engagements took place. Numbers of commenters who uh, who were killed varies widely from estimates ranging from 7 to 700 men, according to the Scottish Battles Gaz- uh, Gazetteer. Around uh, 12,000 or 1,200, Blah, I know my numbers, around 1,200 were taken prisoner. And uh, it says in the aftermath, the prisoners were taken to Edinburgh and held on land beside Greyfair's kirkyard. An area known as the Coventers' Prison. Many remained there for several months until the last of them were transported to the colonies in November. However, a later shipwreck allowed 48 of the 257 prisoners to escape. And that happens to be one of my ancestors, Robert Joseph McEwen. Pretty cool. And it says all those who had taken part in the Coventers' side of the battle were declared rebels and traitors. And the repression during this period had been con- had been had become known as the killing time in Commenter's histories. And uh little background, well uh, the killing time uh, was actually a pretty significant uh period in uh, Scottish history. And uh just a little write up in the beginning, killing time was a period of conflict in Scottish history between the Presbyterian commentary movement, largely based in the southwest of the country, and the government force, forces of the King, King's, King Charles II and King James uh, VII. The period, roughly from 1679 to the Glorious Revolution of 1688, was subsequently called the Killing Time, by Robert Woodrow in his History of the Sufferings of the Church of Scotland from the Restoration to the Revolution, published in 1721 uh, to the 22nd. It is an important episode in the martyrology of the Church of Scotland. And uh, mm, I guess we could just skip towards the, uh, the situation of the killing time. Uh, the church ministers were confronted with a stark choice accept a new situation or lose their livings up to a third of the ministry refused many ministers chose uh, voluntarily to abandon their own parishes rather than wait to be forced out by the government because the government uh, had sanctioned their um i guess their sect of christianity um to be i guess Revolutionary, and um, because at that time, uh, I guess King James the had uh, developed a compromise that tended towards Episcopalian church government. Um, so, yeah, where am I? Let's see. Some of the ministers also took to preaching in open fields often attracting thousands of worshippers. The Scottish Privy Council attempted to end the dissent in the form of the first indulgence of 1669, followed by a second in 1672. These allowed ministers to return to their churches on the condition that they remained silent on the issues divided by the Kirk. The English writer Daniel Defoe, who studied the period, listed the reasons why the more intransient uh, clergy refused to countenance the offer. One, they would not accept our indulgence of worshiping God by the license of the bishops because they said they had abjured Pre- Pre-Lacy in the covenant, I hope I said that right, and had declared the bishops to be anti-scriptural and anti-Christian, and to take license from them was to homilgate their authority as legal, which they detested and abhorred. Uh, Number two, they would not take the oath of supremacy because they could not in conscience allow any king or head of the church but Jesus Christ. Number three, they would not pray for the king or swear to him because he was a persecutor of the church and thereby an enemy to God because he had renounced the oath of God in the covenant And until he had repented, they would have nothing to do with him. Number four, uh, being barred all manner of liberty to worship God in public and on the severest of penalties uh, forbidden to assemble themselves together, either in the churches or in private families, and believing in at the, the same time their duty according to the scriptures not to forsake assembling. They could not satisfy their consciences to obey man rather than God. So, uh, when I, when I read through that, what I take from it, I mean, uh, this is, uh, the, where pretty much the constitution of the United States comes from, uh, the right to peacefully assemble and, uh, that the state shall not, um, oh, it's the separation of church and state. I probably should have looked that up beforehand, but, I mean, back in England, <clears throat> the king pretty much uh dictated which church uh that the common people would believe in, and the Scottish rebelled, um, preferring their own uh, Presbyterianism, so you can kind of see how um, these religious struggles in England affected the uh, drafting of the Constitution of the United States, which I think it's pretty significant. And uh, so Robert McEwen was a part of that struggle. It was pretty cool. And uh, there is another write-up um, from Historic UK. Uh, they have another write-up that I thought was uh, pretty interesting. So following his restoration to the throne, King Charles II gradually imposed strict controls on the religions practiced through his kingdoms. And particularly, the Presbyterian commenters of Scotland were singled out and persecuted for their beliefs. So, there it is, uh, to put it plainly. Uh, And it says, although one small uprising had been quelled in 1666, many hardliners continued to hold their illegal outdoor meetings. Man, you can kind of think of what's going on today. And uh, people today are just kind of taking it. Whereas people uh, back in history would have been up in arms, shooting at each other with muskets, and hacking at each other with swords and spears. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and I looked up because I know that uh, everyone, everyone in Scotland, they all have these last names. And their last names are um, what Scottish people uh, organize themselves into clans, and so I just kind of did a Google search and looked up Clan McEwen and um, it, it's pretty interesting. Uh, Clan dot com. Uh, it has a little write up of what a uh, what is Clan McEwen? Uh, without making any claims regarding ancestry, we derive the core of our identity from Clan Ewan of otter, that part of w- bleh, sorry that part of it which scattered far and wide before and after the clan lost its lands at the end of the fifteenth century, travelling here and there, these variously spelled MacEwans formed alliances with other clans and others of that name were described as bandits, children of the mist. Oh, my dishes just finished cleaning. (laughs) Anyway, continuing on, uh, and other forms of that name were described as bandits, children of the mist, a broken clan. Throughout this time, it might be imagined the longing remained to become organized to regroup an elective chief once more. Then... Once the act of prescription had been repealed in 1782 and the revival of the clans led by Walt, Sir Walter Scott took hold, Mac sought to solidify their self-image. A crest and a model were settled upon and a tartan recognized. No one knows whether these symbols of our identity relate to uh, whatever such symbols were employed by Clan Ewan of Otter, but we would like to think it they do there has been, at any rate, uh, much scholarly attention paid to the importance of the oak tree to the people of Dalriada. Whatever our crest, motto, and tartan are now, by now sufficiently time honored to be considered historical and entrenched, whatever our various origins, and no one, it seems, can be certain of his or her 15th century forebears. And I tried to trace uh, back, um, Robert uh, McEwan's uh, lineage, and it doesn't go too far back. So um, I think this write-up is pretty spot-on in in that regard. It says, we are a clan of song and poetry, of art and literature, and now photography. We also seem unusually rich in legal minds, politicians, doctors, and even bankers. It would be fine indeed if we could intertwine our various strands of McEwan's uh, expertise and provide a coherent voice to speak loudly among the other clans in Scotland, generally and to the diaspora, and to listen. The MacEwan clan is a good thing and seeks to do good. We are, of course aware that there are some in our beloved sister clan, the Ewing 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 clan also sporting a newly appointed commander, who believe that the Sept of Clan Ewan, referred to by R.S.T. Mac Iwen, which came to the Lennox country after the loss of Otter, gave rise to the Ewing family, which established its arms in the 16th century, and that the heirs of the chiefly line are Ewings. There is plenty of room to accommodate this hypothesis, and for both clans to gaze through the mists in the direction of Kilfinan, even if the hypothesis were correct, it would not claim that Clan Ewing of Otter is in, is in it, <laughs> in it, its tire, entirety settled in Lennox under the Audacieux banner. Clan MacEwan is considered with the remnants, the scattered element, those who wandered, bereft, chiefless, and recognized no chief. Also, the Ewing name has long had a strong presence elsewhere than Argyle, and, as prospective chief of the arms of and name, the Ewing commander will doubtless be seeking to bring together all expressions of the vigorous Ewing identity. God bless the Ewings. Clan McEwen, meanwhile, must look to thrive in 2017 and onward. Clan Ewen Society is doing all it can to promote the clan, and it would be grand if everyone could encourage other clan's folks and those sympathetic to the clan to become members of the society. Wear the tartan, proclaim your identity, and be proud of your clan. We have done quite well so far fulfilling our ancestors' command to rise again, but there is a road yet to travel. And uh, it's pretty cool. Um, they have let's see, a clan motto, which is, it's in Latin, Riviersco, which in English is translated as, I grow strong again. Pretty cool, pretty cool um, motto. And uh, all the clans have their own mottos, and they have their own, uh, I, I would say it's like a pen, and they all have their own tartans so the pin the clan pin is usually worn with the scottish tartan and the scottish tartan is uh for clan McEwen is uh, really quite beautiful uh it's got i mean the main i guess the ancient version uh the main block is uh like a sky blue almost and the second Color, coloration uh, is like a, I would say, like a light green almost. Well, I guess you could say it's like a, yeah, a light green, and then with uh, black, uh, dark, thick lines running across with uh, thin yellow and red lines running through the uh, tapestry. And I read that the colors don't necessarily pertain to to any kind of symbology, it's just what the clan decided on at the time, Um, so yeah, very beautiful, excuse me, and uh, let's see, the plant badge, Uh, let's see, the McEwen plant badge, It says, not all clans have a plant badge, but it was used as a symbol to distinguish the different clans before the use of the clan crest badges. There are multiple theories as to why and when this practice started. The clan decided at the AGM that it would like a plant badge, and the two obvious ones uh, for the clan were the oak or the Irish yew. The oak was nominated as it has long been a symbol of the clan, it is in the cre- clan crest badge, uh, is found in the ancestral homeland, and symbolism resonates with the clan's motto, uh, We Grow Strong Again, but is used by at, at least five other clans. The Irish use was nominated as a nod to the I- uh, Irish clan's uh, descendancy, and I, I think I touched on it in the very first episode. It looks like um, Clan iwan is descended from the Dalriottans. And the Dalriottans were actually uh, Irish Celts who immigrated over to what is now called Scotland um, on their western shores. So the Dalriottans occupied the western shores of Scotland and could never really, uh, I guess, expand out into... Out further into Scotland until the Picts, uh, the Pictish kingdoms, were destroyed uh, by the Viking invaders. So once that happened, uh, the Dalriatans pretty much took over all the Pictish lands. Um, The Pictish language and uh, culture—nothing really survives from it. However, I—I'm not sure if the Dalriatans killed all of the Pictish people, but it seems more likely that the Pictish people um, were, I guess, uh, like kind of absorbed into the Dalriatan Scott culture, which, you know, is the Scottish people today. So, uh, sorry, just went off on a little tangent there. Uh, it says after the discussion, the clan voted to adopt the Irish yew as the oak is already represented in the clan cl- crest. Blah, I swear I can talk. Uh, is already represented in the clan crest badge. It is available year-round, holds up well out of water, and is a sign of respect for our ancestors. The information has been made available for a year on the clan website. Blah blah blah. Um. Let's see, let's go back, um, the, oh no, we don't want that one, we will go to the crest badge, and it has just this little write-up, uh, and it has a clearer picture, um, of the crest badge, and it has the clan motto, and it also has what looks like an oak stump with, uh, Like little, I don't know if you've ever cut down an oak tree, um, but sometimes uh, the oak tree will actually start growing out new green shoots, and these, you know, kind of turn into uh, a new oak tree. So it has that symbol in the middle and uh, like a belt that wraps around uh, the symbol. Pretty cool. It says, many clansfolk today wear a crest badge to show allegiance to their particular clan. Crest badges usually consist of a strap-on buckle surrounding the clan chief's uh, heraldic crest with the chief's motto written within the strap. Since clan revival of the early 19th century, many Mechiawans have adopted the crest of a large oak stump, clearly the base of what was once a large oak tree. That, despite having been cut down, is now sprouting new branches. The banner accompanying the image bears the Latin motto, "Latin motto Riviersco," I grow green, verdant, and strong again. The crest badge is now is not derived from the arms of a previous chief of the clan, but appears to have been in use among the Galloway MacGowans from an earlier date. This crest and motto are recorded in the arms of the McGowan Baronets. Um, these McGowans held lands in uh, Bar chat and Carrick. So pretty cool. And this is the clan that uh, Robert McGowan is uh, descended from, but it is not clear because it said um, they kind of uh, organized the clan in the 19th century, which would be the 1800s. So it's, I don't think that, um, uh, Robert McEwen would, would have been wearing, uh, the clan badge or the crest badge or, uh, this particular tartan. So, so yeah, uh, that's a little information on his clan. Uh, that's information about the uh, battle that he was involved in and how he got to America. And, uh, I, I just think it's, uh, just an amazing piece of history that, um, I'm assuming that his ship mutinied and, uh, he escaped with, uh, with a couple of his friends from a life sentence working in, you know, on some plantation in Panama, um, probably would have been a death sentence for him. So, Anyway, uh I think that pretty much wraps up this episode. We're hitting a, at about uh 32 minutes and I think, you know, I I I got into this band and I I found them before I found out about Robert McGowan's story or even before I discovered him in my ancestry. Um and I would like to think that this song uh represents him or people you know maybe that were on that ship Uh, but either way I just wanted to end this episode with this song
1: Forever live in chains And we battle to existence On and on We'll take whatever comes to be While keeping hopeful melody And we'll cruise through the darkness Until the warmth of dawn So roll, roll, you bastard, You never can tell Through water like glass Above a variety howl, so roll and I'll holler, come give her all you can,
2: for the sea
1: she will best us, we'll never see the land. We carry on the burden and we hide our grimace well, for the day will come for us to mutiny. But as long as we survive our hope and pride, they can't deprive, and we'll carry on our melody to singing harmony. So roll roll, your Jane ever can tell over water like glass above a briny hell. So roll hello hollow, come give her all you can, or the sea she will. Us. We'll never see the land Years, we can still escape this power and misery. But even with our shackled wrists, we can fight our way through this, and we'll power all aboard the ship to total liberty. So hold
2: your ourselves.
0: was uh the tempest by the real mackenzie's and um yeah i don't think i really have anything else to say so um you can subscribe to this podcast on uh wherever you get your podcasting stuff and uh if you're on itunes rate it uh leave a little nice write-up and uh that's gonna be it until next week bye